Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. Every so often, a story comes along and makes you want to change your life. I first encountered this story last year, and we're rerunning this episode today to celebrate the publication of Isabella Tree's life-changing book, Wilding, in the United States. Since the episode originally aired, I've also had the chance to visit Isabella's estate, which is called NEP, and see the rewilding project for myself which involved seeing the first stork's nest in England in over 500 years. It is honestly a miracle that I came back to the States at all. Nep is just that magical. So consider yourself warned. The following episode may lead you to quit your day job and go on the hunt for a parcel of land to rewild. Should Smarty Pants go the way of the mammoth, you'll know where I am. So what is rewilding? As Isabella Tree explains in her new book, Wilding, it's a way of managing land for conservation that involves minimal human intervention. Think of the National Park Service's approach to Yellowstone, for example, or the reintroduction of wolves and beavers and bison. Human hands are off, animal hoofs and maws are on. Nep Wildland, Isabella Tree and Charlie Burrell's former farm in West Sussex, is a 3,500-acre experiment in radical conservation that challenges our conventional ideas about what our land should look like in the future and what it's actually looked like in the past. Maybe the places where rare endangered species live now are only the wild vestiges of the actual habitat that they prefer. Maybe we don't know as much about the complex relationships between creatures and plants, soil and insects, as we thought we did. Today at NEP, nature is the instructor. Fallow deer, Exmoor ponies, longhorn cattle, and Tamworth pigs now roam the English countryside, trampling through scrubland and tearing down tree branches. When I visited Nep in September, I walked right through a herd of Exmoor ponies, happily munching on the landscape and the old hedgerows. I could even see in some fields little fenced-off squares, maybe six feet by six feet, where grazing animals couldn't reach in and eat. It was a way for scientists to see what exactly would be growing there and how the landscape would be different if there weren't these herds of grazing animals. And alongside these growing herds of herbivores, other species have returned in huge numbers, too. 
endangered ones like the turtle dove, the peregrine falcon, rare butterflies. Nep is pointing the way towards a wilder, richer future, like the one you're hearing behind my voice right now. Birdsong from Nep, and something that I saw for myself, a little gaggle of Tamworth pigs trotting around with their piglets, looking for the next patch of soil to rootle around in. Isabella Tree joins us from London to talk about her wild experiment. Thank you so much, Isabella, for chatting with us about rewilding. Great pleasure. So can you set the stage for the transformation of NEP from a working farm to what it is now? I mean, what made you shift gears so dramatically? Well, we inherited this this farm. It's it's three and a half thousand acres in uh, a corner of southeast England in West Sussex. Uh, from my husband's grandparents in the 1980s. And already when we inherited, it was a failing farm. It's arable and dairy. Every inch of it had been ploughed up since the Second World War, and it had been continuing to be worked like that. Uh, We sort of assumed, I think, when we took over with the, the sort of naivety and optimism of youth that we could make a go of it. And for 17 years, we we did what all good farmers are supposed to do. We intensified, we bought bigger machinery, we changed our types of cattle so that they could produce more milk. We sprayed the land with more fertilizers, more pesticides, more fungicides, you name it, threw all these chemicals at the land. And after 17 years, in fact, our overdraft was rising. And the reason was that we're on very heavy clay. It's marginal land. It was never really cut out for intensive farming. And as technology has got more sophisticated and uh, bigger farms are more successful, we just could not compete. Um, I think the realization hit us in about 2000. And we decided to sell up the farm machinery and sell all the animals, made our farm manager redundant and nine men. It was a very black day. But we knew that we wanted to continue managing the farm. It was no option for us to sell. This had been in my husband's family for over 200 years. And we thought we would do something with the land rather than working against it all the time. And just by complete coincidence, I think, the the timing was extraordinary. In 2000, um, this remarkable man called Franz Vera had brought out a book called Grazing Ecology and Forest History in English. It, it's not the lightest read, but what um, what basically he's saying was was really sending shockwaves through the conservation and, and ecology community at the time. Because what he's saying is that in all our imaginings of how our landscape in temperate zone Europe and in Britain would have looked, we've completely forgotten about the huge herds of roaming animals that would have been here. We've forgotten about bison, Oroch, tarpan, elk, wild boar, beavers by the million. And so what he's saying is that these animals drive habitats. They create wonderful mosaics of sort of margins and and vegetation complexity. And if you want to recover some of the huge biodiversity losses that we've been suffering over the last few decades, or maybe a century or more... um, You can do this by reintroducing these herds of animals and allowing them to roam about the landscape and create habitat. The key is to sit back and let them do it. And so we thought this was really intriguing and we decided that we would do an experiment, uh, um, 
It's now called rewilding, but at the time, we weren't really using that word. We ring-fenced our our 3,500 acres and released some free-roaming animals, and and off we went. Yeah, Franz Vera's thesis about grazing animals totally blew my mind. And what I love about the story of Nep is just how unexpected a lot of the changes were, because no one has really done an experiment like this in England before. And ironically, some of the opposition you got from conservation groups, and as a result, a lack of funding, actually led to the success of the acres that you ignored. Well, that's absolutely right, because um, we we got some funding. Uh, we didn't do it, you know, the, the whole 3,500 acres in one go. Uh, we weren't that brave. Um, <laughs> we did it sort of by increments, and we got some funding to restore the Repton Park around the house. It's this wonderful Nash Castle. Um, and that we got, we got funding to restore the park, so we released free-roaming um, fallow and old English longhorns and Exmoor ponies into that area and Tamworth pigs eventually. Um, but there was a, a, a large chunk of land, about 1,200 acres, that we just couldn't get funding for because it had never been on a map that had been shown to be a park before. And at, the, at that time, there was only funding available for, for park restoration. So we just didn't know what to do with it. And we just left it, basically. Uh, it wasn't worth us farming it. wasn't even worth contract farming. Nobody was interested. We just let it go. And so for about six or seven years, you had this incredible vegetation pulse. We didn't even have the money or the wherewithal to sow grasses or, or native flora again, like we did in, in the park restorations. So after ploughing, after the final harvest, we just let it go. And what happened was you suddenly get this explosion of vegetation. You get thorny scrub, blackthorn, bramble, hawthorn, sallow, all sorts of vegetation coming up. And then finally, when seven or eight years later, we'd been able to persuade the powers that be to give us funding for this this experiment and ring fence it and let animals into this area, we already had some exciting vegetation there. So what you have is a much more equal battle between vegetation succession and animal disturbance. So you've got the herds of animals free roaming in this scrubland that now looks much like Africa, really like the African bush. It's astonishing. And it's constantly moving. It's very dynamic. And the animals um, there are creating ever more complex vegetation structures. The vegetation is fighting back because the shrubs, as they're, as they're browsed by... Because the cattle obviously browse as well as graze. Um, they produce um, sharper thorns, they produce tannins, so they start fighting back. And this creates endless opportunities for other, other, other forms of life. It's just been rocket fuel for biodiversity, and it was by complete accident that we'd done it this way. Can you explain what the oak tree has to do with all of this? Because the oak is part of this story at the park that you restored, but it also sprouts up, so to speak, in the southern block in the midst of this scrubland. Yes, I mean, in a way, uh, the oak tree was our, our epiphany, I think. Uh, it began us thinking along this path of restoration because 
We had a wonderful old, we have a wonderful old oak tree right next to the house. It's about 500 years old. So, you know, it was a sapling in the Wars of the Roses. You know, it would have seen the Civil War and parliamentarians and cavaliers and roundheads riding underneath it. It's an extraordinary piece of history, uh, but it was splitting down the middle. And we got a wonderful man called Ted Green to come and advise us about it. In short, he said, well, there's actually nothing wrong with this tree. We can stabilise it. It'll be fine for another 500 years. But he turned his back and he looked at these trees in the landscape around us that where we'd been farming, ploughing right up to the roots of the trees, right up to the tree trunks. And he said, now those trees are in trouble. And that's when we realised that the trouble was down to us. We were responsible for these beautiful veteran oaks falling sick and becoming very staggy and, you know, shortening their lives. So that's what started us along the whole journey of rewilding in the first place, I suppose. But what's interesting is that I think we've come full circle because in the absence of thorny scrub, the oak doesn't have any way of regenerating, really, um, except for human planting. So there's been very little of that um, over the last few centuries in Britain. In medieval times, though, there's this wonderful adage they have in the New Forest, which is, the thorn is the mother of the oak. And there's this recognition that jays will plant the acorns right next to a little patch of thorny scrub. It's probably for the jay, it's a marker of where to remember that that acorn is so it can feed the the cotyledons to its young the following year. But what happens quite often is that thorny scrub encroaches around that sapling as it grows and provides a kind of natural barbed wire. So it's a natural defence against grazing by roe deer or or whatever else is in in the landscape. And that's how oak trees naturally regenerate in an open landscape. They obviously, they need light, these trees, oak trees. So they never would have thrived in closed canopy forest, which is what we often have in our heads used to exist before human impact. They would always have needed open areas to produce acorns. And so the oak really is the evidence that we have beyond anything else that our landscape would have been much, much more open than previously imagined. Right. The mental acrobatics that you describe that all of these um, proponents, I guess, of the closed canopy theory go through to explain how oak trees survived or how, you know, lichens ended up where they are was just astonishing to me. And I wanted you to talk about, um, I guess, why there's such a resistance to rewilding, why this idea is so controversial and why there were so many hurdles to your project, both administrative and legal, but also, you know, socially. Your neighbors were not really happy initially, right? I think it's it's sort of easy to understand, actually. I think if you, you know, if you were a neighbor of ours and you're used to looking out on a, on a landscape that you feel is very stable and very secure, hedged fields, everything manicured within an inch of its life, linear edges to, to woods and copses, rivers that are that are managed so that they never burst their banks and you know if you've got that sense of control this very victorian corseted obsession with control in your in your culture which we do i think certainly in britain we do then you're looking over your garden fence and you see that landscape changing into thorny scrub uh creeping thistle ragwort 
and certainly for the first few years, not much to show for it, then you think, what on earth are they doing? Um, we got so many letters of complaint and, um, and letters that we were being at best kind of negligent um, or irresponsible. At worst, we were being unpatriotic because we weren't growing food. Uh, we were we were we were being irresponsible and destroying the beauty of the countryside, and we just had to stick to our guns. Then I think because we knew why we were doing it, and we just felt that exciting things were happening. We were already seeing um, orchids coming back in the middle of the field, so we knew that there was mycorrhizal networks beginning to re-establish in our very depleted soils. We were seeing fantastic insects coming back. Already, I think we were seeing purple emperor butterflies within a few years of the project, one of our rarest butterflies. And we'd started to hear turtle doves and nightingales by about 2007. So we knew that something exciting was happening. And I think now things are changing because now we have got these astonishing wildlife successes. I think people are much more understanding of what we're doing and much more tolerant and and I think it's helped to change really the aesthetic because it's beautiful but in a very different way and we now get um, thousands of people a year coming to visit us to see NEP and to walk in it and to hear this amazing surround sound bird song and that I think is beginning to change people's values and people's way of looking at the countryside and what it could be and, and what it was perhaps in the past and what it could be in the future. We'll be back in a minute with the story of how Isabella and her husband, Charlie, dealt with an explosion of creeping thistle at Nap. In the meantime, turtle doves and a word from our sponsors. So speaking of creeping thistle, I think that sort of exemplifies the transition from, you know, a negligent landscape to something beautiful and just how <laughs> complex the ecosystem is because that was so unpredictable what happened. Yes, oh that was rather, <laughs> was rather terrifying. I mean, you know, it's been quite a journey for us, I think, um having been control freaks ourselves, having been farmers, you know. And um, a few years into the project, we suddenly saw creeping thistle, you know, uh, just completely explode. It's a, it's a very successful pioneer plant. So it comes in at any opportunity. And as any gardener knows, trying to dig it up, you know, its roots go incredibly deep and it will just explode again. So as farmers, have, if you see creeping thistle, you're out there instantly with the toppers and the herbicides. And we th- had taken this sort of journey into rewilding where we were really giving nature the driving seat so we had to sit on our hands and watch this creeping thistle cover acres and acres and acres and think what on earth are we going to do about this and what was astonishing was um, two years on we suddenly had this explosion of painted lady butterflies. It happened to coincide with this incredible migration, a boom year for painted lady butterflies, which had migrated from Morocco, and they'd come to Britain in their many, many millions. And literally, we woke up one morning, one summer morning, and these these butterflies were flying past our window like tracer. It was absolutely extraordinary. And you could stand in the creeping thistle because this was where they were landing. It's their food plant. And so they would lay their eggs and the caterpillars over that summer 
just destroyed the, the creeping thistle. And the following year, there wasn't a plant left. So it was our first lesson in the kind of boom and bust cycles of nature. Nature doesn't, doesn't really tolerate a monoculture for long. Something will come in and take advantage of it. You've just got to be patient and let nature take its course. And then you see these extraordinary miracles happening. So we, we, we now, when we see creeping thistle or ragwort exploding in sort of beautiful billows of yellow across the landscape, we just hold our nerve and, and think, no, it's OK. so speaking of surprising arrivals one of the other incredible sections in your book involved the arrival of the purple emperor butterfly and other species like nightingales and turtle doves but as you write if you had been trying to build the perfect park for purple emperors and turtle doves or whatever you wouldn't have been nearly as successful as you were accidentally yeah no that that's absolutely right um it's it's so interesting because what's happened at NEP is is this habitat has reemerged because of the the sort of the, the free roaming animals that it would have been very much like the landscape say in medieval times the kind of the times when scrubland and and thorny scrub was very much treasured and we only have to go back into our old place names of our fields to know that they were once scrub, you know, they're called Fursfield and Brummer's Corner and all these old English names that point to kind of different types of scrub. So what all these these species are finding at NEP is a habitat that's not out there in the landscape anymore. But because we have been observing these creatures like turtle doves and nightingales and purple emperors in our depleted landscape for the last 50 years, we assume that where we see them is where they want to be. So nightingales and purple emperor butterflies, for example, are classed in all the guidebooks as woodland species because that's the only place that you see them now is in, is in woodland. But at NEP, we're not finding them in woodland at all. We're finding them right out in the open in this emerging scrub. And that is where they are absolutely thriving. And so really it's teaching us that species aren't necessarily where we allocate them. It's just that that's where we're seeing them nowadays, that species may be clinging on by their fingernails to habitat that's not optimum for them, but they would much prefer something like NEP. So we're sort of rewriting the science text in a way, and we're, we're reminding ourselves of where these species originated and where they would much, much rather be. It's, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. Well, and I think there are other examples, too, that you talk about. Um, We haven't really talked about water yet, and that's a huge component of the landscape at NEP, you know, the river and rewilding the waterways. And it seems like efforts in communities like this little town in the Yorkshire Dales Pickering that you talk about, um, it was nearly washed away by flooding. And then it survived a flood later in 2015, essentially after they built a man-made beaver dam. Yes. Um, (laughs) And that's sort of, that like to me really tells the story of what's wrong with our conventional approach to water management. So what does a rewilding approach to water look like? Well, I mean, I think uh, it's not a huge area at NEP. We've got this tiny river that was canalized in the Victorian times, really to get the water off the land and make it better for agriculture, which it sort of seemed to fail to do because our our clay (laughs) loves to hold the water. We wanted to re-naturalize the river. So we wanted to uh, push it out of its canal, get it back onto the floodplain, get back into the meanders where it used to be. 
And it took us about eight years trying to persuade the Environment Agency. It was eight years of the most frustrating time. But finally, they agreed to fund it. And then for two years, we had Reg, the digger driver, creating another kind of canal, just a wiggly canal. He could not mess it up. He couldn't make the edges messy. He couldn't make it shallow. He couldn't think like a beaver. And so after Reg had gone, we simply went in there and did a pickering job. I mean, we went in there and created woody debris blockages like beavers would have done. We tried to slow the water down a bit. We tried to create eddies and riffles and mess up the margins using the cattle to kind of open it up a little bit, shallow it out. But we realised after all this effort that we had been doing something that a pair of beavers could have done in half the time at no expense and much, much better. Um, (laughs) So we are now going to be applying for a licence to release beaver at NEP. We'll see how that goes down. But I think the signs are good at last. Um, I think the British government are, are seeing that the beaver has huge positives for for the landscape and for hydrology and biodiversity. And and it's thanks largely to all the studies done in America showing how beavers in America have restored ecosystems and what they do for water purification and and fish populations, everything. And, and of course, there's amazing studies in Europe where the beaver has also been bouncing back and is now present in, in the many millions. Um, it just takes us much longer, I think, than anywhere else to, to realise and and go for change. We're very fearful of change being an island, I think. (laughs) So, I mean, speaking of beaver licenses, which is a really charming concept, supposing that you could do whatever you wanted on the estate and that there were no hurdles like this and you could just drop some beavers in there tomorrow, what does your dream NEP have in the future that it doesn't have already now? Well, it's so interesting doing a rewilding project because... um, Really, it's, it's, it has no goals. It has no targets. So we don't hope for anything, really, except that, you know, just to see what will happen. And year on year, we just have more and more species returning. So we, we expect that that will just continue building because it seems like, you know, E.O. Wilson describes that the more life there is, the more life there is. So uh, I think we're anticipating just more adventures of the same, you know, more exciting species returning. I think one thing we would love, as I said, we'd love the beaver back. We'd also love to connect our land with neighbours. We're already talking to some of our neighbours now who are, are, are sounding like they're interested. We'd one day love to connect with the sea. Uh, it's only about 25 miles away as the, as the crow flies or the nightingale or the turtle dove flies. And we'd love it, you know, to have our cattle grazing on, browsing on sallow at Nep one week and then grazing on seaweed on the, on the pebble beach at Shoreham the next. That to us would be truly landscape scale. And then maybe we could think about reintroducing bison perhaps, you know, something that's a really heavy hitter that can, that can really do battle with, with some vegetation and, and create some, some more wonderful habitat for us. But again, I think we have to change our mentality and I think um, public perception, we hope, will evolve to appreciate what free-roaming animals can do so that we can learn to live with wild horses again, Um, carcasses rotting down in the countryside without being tidied up all the time because obviously you're depriving a whole host of, of, um, of kind of 
decaying species, species that specialise in decaying and rotting bodies. Um, and that's all part of the process of soil restoration and, and, and all that. We're really missing a trick there with us tidying up carcasses on the land. So we'd like to see that. Um, we'd, we'd like to see, I think, just an appreciation for for the dynamism that can be back in a landscape again and for people to feel less fearful of natural processes. We have photographs of the incredible biodiversity at NEP on our website, as well as wildlife videos and links to more about NEP, Isabella Tree's book, Wilding, and their inspiration for the estate, Frank Vera's work in the Ostvardisplassa, also known as the Dutch Serengeti. If you want to visit NEP, you'll have to make your way to Sussex, England, although it is only an hour and a half outside of London by train, and the wildland itself is free and open to the public, with walking paths and bridle paths throughout all three areas of the estate. You can even camp and glamp there. Most of the land is closed off to people, in the spirit of letting the animals and plants do their thing, but you can see a lot of it from the path. And the only way to go inside is to take a safari, which I did, in a sturdy all-terrain vehicle. There may be photos of this on the website. It is really silly looking. Um, And it is really like a safari because you'll never know what you'll see. But if you're lucky, maybe you'll get a chance to see those storks. And if you go at the right time, like I did, there will be oodles of blackberries to sustain you on your very British walk through the estate. Though, no matter what time of year you go, there's always something new to see. I highly recommend it. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.